0: William Booth, if you know who that is, slip up your hand. All right, good. A lot of us. So Booth, if you don't know who that was, Booth, William Booth was a, an English Methodist a preacher um, from the late 1800s, and he's the one who founded the Salvation Army. Um, it, it started with him. So the story goes something like this, that there was uh, a convention, their annual convention that was supposed to happen in uh, December 1910. Um, but because of william booth 's failing health, he couldn't be there to attend, so a close companion of booth 's uh, encouraged him to at least send a telegram uh, that could be read to all of the volunteers who were going to be there for this uh, this big annual convention. So booth agreed now, funds were limited, and telegrams. Uh, Charged by the word, and because Booth wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to waste any money, uh, he decided to send a one word message in this telegram. He spent some time thinking about the one word that would summarize the mission of the Salvation Army, that one word that would encourage his workers to continue on through those cold winter months. So, when the thousands of delegates then gathered at the convention that December, the moderator announced. That Booth couldn't be present, but that he instead uh, sent a telegram to be read at the start of the opening session. So the moderator opened the message and read just one word Others. Signed, General Booth. Others. See, as we open up to the sixth and final chapter, Uh, In our study of Galatians this morning, we see the Apostle Paul reminding his readers of the same thing Booth reminded his workers of, that there is always a need for Christians to focus on others. We need to focus on others. Now, if you remember, just a little bit of background uh, for where we've been, um, Galatians has six chapters. so the first two chapters of Galatians are very personal. It talks about um, Paul is making some personal arguments. He's defending uh, his apostleship. He's defending uh, the gospel that he was preaching. He he lays the argument out that Jesus was the one who actually uh, gave him uh, the gospel, that he received it from Jesus himself. Because there were those within the churches in Galatia who were saying, well, Jesus is just the start of Christian faith. But it's really Jesus plus something. It's Jesus plus religious rituals. It's Jesus plus uh, any, uh, the law of Moses. It's Jesus plus circumcision. And then you have chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians. Those go from the transition from the personal and those go to the doctrinal. In, in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians, we see some, some major doctrinal issues. And, and Paul lays out that the heart of the gospel truly is Jesus plus nothing. It's all about trusting in the person of Jesus to save you, to redeem you, to forgive you, to set you free. If you trust in Jesus, your eternity is secure and your relationship with God is certain. The gospel is all about God doing for us, in us, and through us what we can never do on our own. That's the gospel. Our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus was initiated by God and it's sustained by God. Then you have chapters five and six. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul uh, then shifts from the doctrinal to the practical. He shows, okay, so, so what does all of this mean for our daily living? How should this actually practically affect us day in and day out? He explains then how the gospel should take root practically in our lives, transforming us and, and enabling us to transform those, helping to transform those around us. And Paul, that's a point that Paul made in Galatians 5.13, when he said, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And then last week, Pastor Joe showed for us that uh, really the only true way for a Christian to live his or her life is independence on the Spirit. It's by walking in the Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul meant in Galatians 5.16 when he said, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So now we get to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And now Paul further applies the gospel uh, horizontally. He shows what it looks like when there's not just one, uh, not just two, not just a handful of people who are yielded to the spirit. But he shows what it looks like when there's a community, an entire church community of believers who are yielded to the spirit. And so what we're going to learn today is that spirit-led Christians cultivate spirit-filled community. When we truly live lives of dependence on the Holy Spirit, it will change the way we relate to one another. It's going to lead to a stronger church family marked by selflessness, marked by servanthood, marked by humility, marked by love. Spirit-led Christians cultivate spirit-filled community. Now, in the passage, Paul's going to lay out at least four ways that each of us can uh, help cultivate this kind of spirit-filled community. So here's the first way, jumping right into it. The first way is, one, we gently restore one another. The first way we cultivate spirit-filled community is by gently restoring one another. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 1, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Paul essentially says here, you want to know how to cultivate a spirit-filled community? You begin by restoring gently a brother or a sister who's become entrapped, ensnared, caught under the weight of sin. And Paul begins the verse by using family language. He calls calls them his brothers, his brothers and sisters, right? He's reminding the Christians in Galatia that they're all part of God's large family. And as we all know, being part of a family comes with problems. Sometimes, many times, those of us who make up a member of that family get caught in sin. We get overtaken by sin. So then, if that is the case and that happens, what should our response be when we see a brother or sister caught in sin, overtaken by sin? Do we gossip about it in the form of a prayer request? Do we repeat what we heard from someone else close to that person? Do we avoid the person? Do we judge the person? See, that might be the cancel culture method of, of dealing with With sins, but that is not the Christ centered method, uh, especially for those of us who've been on the receiving end of God's grace and forgiveness, the same grace we're supposed to reflect to others. Instead, what Paul says is that those who are spiritual should restore the brother or sister in gentleness. Now, by spiritual, Paul isn't referring here to like this uh, elite class uh, of Christians. Um, that there's only only an elite class of Christians who can do the restoration here. He's instead simply saying that the restoration needs to be initiated by a believer who's walking in the spirit. That's what he means by spiritual. So all believers uh, really should be walking in the spirit. We're all spiritual. So that's what he's talking about, by a believer who's walking in the spirit like he described at the end of chapter 5. See, it's that kind of spirit-led believer who's to come alongside a sinning saint and to help restore that person. And the word here that Paul uses here for, this kind, for, for, for restore, this kind of restoration, it actually comes from a Greek medical term that they used uh, to set a bone after it had been broken. That's, that's what the word restore means. Right? So, so we're to help a wandering brother get back to the gospel. We're, we're, we're to help promote repentance. We're there to help foster healing within that person, but we're to do it with gentleness. Not harshly, not for the purpose of punishment, not out of pride, but gently and patiently realizing that no one, no one is immune to the trappings of temptation and sin and flesh and remembering that the grace of Jesus is sufficient to cover all of our mistakes, all of our hurts, all of our hang-ups, all of our bad habits. But Paul cautions that when we do, restore another, that we need to be careful to not fall into the same temptation that we're trying to help that family member out of. Now, we have to admit, something about this makes us really, really uncomfortable. Right, we live in a day and age where everything is about the good of the individual, right? The motto is, you do you. I'll do me, you do you. You live independently f- from me. Our lives don't interconnect. Right, we're, we're very independent people especially in America. We love our independence. We're very individualistic. We don't like asking for help. We certainly don't like uh, when others perceive us as being a person in need of help. And we've taken that do-it-yourself approach and we've applied it to Christianity. But understand this. The New Testament knows nothing, nothing of independent Christianity. Those two terms don't even go Side by side, independent Christians. Woven into the very fabric of the Christian faith is the need for face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh community. And it's within that context of deep and meaningful Christian relationships that spiritual restoration happens. It's within that kind of Christian community where we lock arms with others and where we march forward in our mission of pointing others to the beauty of Jesus and the need for his gospel. So there's really a couple exhortations in this one verse. It's an exhortation to the believer who's stuck in sin, right? So so you need to know that whatever sin is, whatever that sin is, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever uh, that secret thing is that you've been trying to get under control uh, in your own strength privately without letting anybody else in, realize that you were not designed to overcome those kinds of struggles alone. In isolation, there's a large community of believers in this church who want nothing but to see you grow closer to Christ. People who love you, people who want to encourage you, people who only care about you and want what's best for you. This church isn't a place where we put your sins on display, where we humiliate you, where we judge you. It's a place of restoration. It's a place of reconciliation. That's what the gospel does. Therefore, that's what the church should be about. You need deep and meaningful Christ-centered relationships if you want to truly grow in your Christian walk. You need some of those no-secret friendships. You need brothers or sisters around you who truly know you, who know the real you, who you've let see the real you. In the 2010 entry in uh, the Men of Integrity magazine, a pastor and author, John Ortberg, writes of the power of these kinds of no-secret friendships. Here's what he writes. Listen to this. He says, one of the most important moments of my spiritual life was when I sat down with a longtime friend and said, I don't want to have any secrets anymore. And then uh, Pastor John goes on and he says, I told him everything I was most ashamed of. I told him about my jealousies, my cowardice, how I hurt my wife with anger. I told him about my history with money and my history with sex. I told him about deceit and regrets that keep me up at night. I felt vulnerable because I was afraid that I was going to lose connection with him. Much to my surprise, he did not even look away. I will never forget his next words. John, he said, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. And then John Warberg says, the very truth about me that I thought would drive him away became a bond that drew us closer together. And he then went on to speak with me about secrets he had been carrying. And then he closes the article by saying this. He said, if I keep part of my life secret from you, you may tell me you love me. But inside, I think that you would not love me if you knew the whole truth about me. I can only receive love from you to the extent that I am known by you. I can only receive love from you to the extent that I am known by you. Are there any other saints around you that know you? I could truly love you and minister to, to you, to the real you. Not to the social media version of you. Right? Not to the, to the you with the facades and masks, but to the real you. Or are we all leading such busy Distracted and self centered lives that we don't even notice when we need help, and we don't even notice when there's a a stumbling saint who needs help? Are there some adjustments that God wants to make in our lives or in our hearts to, to, to refocus our priorities so we could actually be considering others? Are there any believers that He's putting on your heart, maybe even in these moments, that He wants you to reach out to? See, we are brothers and sisters adopted into God's family and knit together by the Holy Spirit in a church community. It's our responsibility to seek the spiritual welfare of one another. It's our responsibility to each other if we really love each other. If we're being led by the Spirit, then we'll stop at nothing to cultivate a Spirit-filled community. So the first way we do that, the first way we foster such an interdependent community like that is by gently restoring one another. And then Paul gives us a second way to cultivate a spirit-filled community and that's by graciously bearing the burdens of one another. The second way we cultivate spirit-filled community is when we graciously bear the burdens of one another. This is what he says in verses two and three. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. See, what Paul is saying here is that when you're living a life of dependence on the spirit, he's going to motivate you. He's going to empower you to come alongside someone who's weighed down by their burdens and he's going to help you help them bear those burdens. When we do this, Paul says, we fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Christ? What does that mean? Well, Paul said in Galatians 5.14, he said this, he said, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Christ. So when we bear the burdens of another believer, we're fulfilling Jesus' commandment to love. The burdens um, that Paul talks about here, that, that word for burdens, those refer to those heavy and oppressive burdens that are impossible to carry alone or that we really shouldn't even be trying to carry alone. Right? It has to do with those, uh, those overwhelming and impossibly huge boulders that, that weigh you down as you stagger along the highway of life. Those burdens might come in the form of physical illness, might come in the form of a financial crisis, it might come in the form of mental illness, it might come in the form of addiction, it might look like a sudden calamity, it might look like a failed marriage or a career setback, it could look like any number of things. But Paul really isn't concerned about the specifics of the burden. Rather, what matters is that when you see A sister or brother staggering under a heavy burden, you drop what it is you're doing and you go to help that brother or sister. You help them bear that load. Instead of judging them, instead of looking on in passive pity, you graciously help them by doing whatever you can for them for as long as you possibly can do that thing for them. That's why Paul also cautions us in verse 3 to avoid pride. And he essentially says that if you somehow think too highly of yourself, that that you're you're too holy, you're, you're too high to stoop down to someone else's level and help that person, Paul says, you're really just deceiving yourself. You're believing a lie about yourself that you're better than you really are. And then he goes on to reiterate this point in verses four and five. He says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So here, Paul's reminding us of the need for for healthy, ongoing examination. Each of us should, should examine our conduct, our motives, through the lens of our responsibility to God and our responsibility to one another. Are we selflessly serving and loving others as God desires? Are we helping to lift those up who have fallen around us? Are we helping to carry each other's burdens? Or are we neglecting the needs? Of those around us? Are we too busy to even notice what those needs are? Now notice that Paul also puts boundaries on his statement because it's as if Paul knew that there were going to be some in in our churches that we're going to have uh, the temptation to make something into a burden that really shouldn't be a burden. So that's why in verse 5 he says that each will have to bear his own load. Now, that sounds like a contradiction to what he said. He said, bear one another's burdens. But now he says in verse 5, carry your own load, bear your own load. Now, those are different words. See, the word load here doesn't refer to a heavy burden. Rather, it refers to to a light uh, shoulder bag, a light backpack, if you would. Just something light that you'd throw on. And the point here being that there are some things in life that are so heavy that we can't Bear them alone. We need help with those burdens and and we need to come alongside others and help them with their burdens. But there are matters in life that are lighter loads that we don't need to panic about, that we're not meant to burden others with. So if it's heavy, we need to step up and help. If it's light, we take care of it ourselves. Not everything is a crisis, not everything is a panic. We need to make sure that we're not only bearing the burdens of another, but also that we're not allowing our light load to become someone else's heavy burden. I heard one pastor say it this way. He said, in church and in Christian community, people want to transfer burdens. And so what happens is overly responsible people who like to be burden lifters attract irresponsible people who want to be burden givers. And next thing you know, they're dumping all of their burdens and responsibilities onto the burden lifters, and what that does is taxes, overwhelms, and takes the time and energy that the burden lifters would otherwise have to help those who have real need. As spirit-led believers called to cultivate spirit-filled community, God wants us to graciously bear each other's burdens. In a society where almost everyone looks down their nose at the hurting, the struggling, the burdened, God calls us to love and to serve such burdened people. Instead of looking at a burdened brother or a sister and thinking, well, she deserves it. Or, oh, he just can't handle the pressure. Or, I'm glad that's not me. Or, ah, they should have listened better next time I told them. Instead of all of these selfish attitudes, realize that apart from the grace of God, we are all nothings and nobodies. And that same grace then ought to energize us to relieve the pressure and lighten the load of our brothers and their sisters. Laura and I recently um, finished uh, watching again the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They have the four-hour versions on HBO Max too. It's really bored. So I love I love the scene at the end of Return of the King. So at, at, in, in that movie, at the end, you see Frodo. He's getting so close to completing his mission of of uh, of dropping the um, the Ring of Power into the fires of Mount Doom. He gets so close, and then, uh, but you see him. He's so weary. He's so battered. He's so exhausted. He, he can't he can't climb another inch. He can't move. He can't make it up the mountain. So then. His loyal friend, Sam, who has been by his side since the beginning, he looks at Frodo and with tears and with passion, he looks at Frodo and he says, come, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the burden for you, but I can carry you. And he goes on to help Frodo up the mountain so he can finish and and complete his mission. And see, in much the same way, the Spirit empowers us to help our brothers and sisters carry the burdens that they were never meant to carry alone, burdens that might otherwise crush them. Spirit-led Christians cultivate Spirit-filled community. We do this first by gently restoring one another. We do this second by graciously bearing the burdens of one another. And then here's the third way we cultivate Spirit-filled community we generously share our blessings with one another. We generously share our blessings with one another. Paul goes on in verse six. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Just make sure you're paying attention. So here, Paul is highlighting the principle of of sharing our blessings with one another, but he's focusing specifically um, on the interplay between Bible teachers and Bible students, right? The teacher of the word shares spiritual blessings. The student of the word shares material blessings or or whatever blessings, whatever good things they have to, to share. And after all, a lot of times what we do with our material blessings is really an indicator of what we truly value spiritually, it's been said that generosity is the test of grace. Right? One who has been transformed by grace ought to be one who is very generous. Generous with their words. Generous with their deeds. Generous with their time. Generous with their finances. And then Paul then brings to the forefront the, the divine law that has been in operation in our lives since the beginning of time. That we reap what we sow. That's, that's a divine law that you see all throughout scripture. We reap what we sow. And that's what Paul says in the next two verses, verses seven and eight. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, what Paul is essentially saying here is that Christians have, have two fields in which they could sow. They have the field of the spirit and the field of the flesh. One of those two fields. So you picture a country state that has these two large fields. One is called spirit field. One is called the, the, the flesh field. Okay, so now every single day we have dozens and dozens of chances to sow seed into one of those two fields. Every sentence we speak, every step we take, every conversation we have sows seeds into one field or the other. Every choice we make sows seed to the flesh field or to the spirit field. What we watch on TV, how we dress, the music we listen to, the video games we play, how we spend our leisure time, who we hang out with, what we browse on the internet. All of these things, every decision is like tossing a seed into one of these two fields. So the question for us then is, which field have we been sowing seeds into? I can't answer that for you. You have to answer that for yourself. Have we been sowing seeds into the field of flesh? That field of self-centeredness where we make the rules, where we're on the throne, where we make every decision based upon ourselves and what's good for for number one? Or are we sowing seeds into the field of the spirit, that field where the grace of God is freely extended, freely received, where others take priority? Over self, I love the way John Stott summarizes this in his commentary on Galatians. He says this. He says, Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying. Every time we read pornographic literature. Every time we take a risk that strains our self-control. We are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. So listen, the point that Paul is trying to make in these verses here is that since it's true that you always reap whatever you sow, right? That's the law, a law of the harvest. You reap whatever you sow, you plant an apple seed, you ain't going to get a pumpkin patch, plant apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree that gives apples. You reap what you sow. So, so, so you might as well sow generously to the field of the spirit so you could reap generous blessings. That's, that's the, that's the point that Paul's making here. So every time you make a selfless decision, for the benefit of another person, you're sowing seed into the field of the spirit. Every time you decide to treat your coworker the right way even though she gossiped about you behind your back, you're sowing seed to the field of the spirit. When you give of your time to teach children's church or when you when you give of your talent to play an instrument on the worship team or to serve on the tech team or to be an usher or whether you support an impoverished child through uh, Uh, Compassion International, like over 150 of us do here at Bayside, you're sowing to the spirit. When you have a busy schedule, but you're willing to put that busy schedule on pause to come alongside a struggling brother or sister, you're sowing to the spirit. Every single time you make a decision that results in sharing any of your resources, any of your blessings with another, you sow to the spirit. Sowing to the Spirit means living moment by moment, day by day, independence on the Spirit, walking in the Spirit so that we constantly practice love, we constantly practice joy, we constantly practice peace, forgiveness, patience under pressure, gentleness to those who irritate us, and goodness to those in need. And when you sow generously to the Spirit, you will reap generously. Generously. As believers who have been called to foster a spirit-filled family community, we ought to be so quick and so generous to share our blessings with one another. Spirit-led Christians cultivate spirit-filled community. We cultivate this every time we gently restore one another, every time we graciously bear each other's burdens, every time we generously share our blessings with one another. And then here's the fourth way we cultivate spirit-filled community. We genuinely persist in caring for one another. We genuinely persist in caring for one another. Now, Paul brings this uh, passage to a conclusion uh, by uh, offering some encouragement in verse 9 and then a final exhortation uh, to biblical community in verse 10. So here's what he says in verse 9. Galatians 6, 9, he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season... We will reap if we do not give up. So so here, Paul is encouraging us to, to persevere, to endure, to persist in doing good. He says, Don't grow weary of doing good. Why does he say that? Because he knows doing good to others can get tiresome, it can lead to exhaustion. He knows that all of us are going to experience seasons of of spiritual exhaustion and spiritual discouragement. He knows that sometimes you're going to be the one to restore another, but he also knows that sometimes you're the one that is going to need some restoring. He knows that, yes, there are going to be times where you have to help bear the burdens of another, but he also knows that there are also going to be times where you are going to have to allow others to bear your burdens with you. He knows that sometimes, uh, that even in those difficult situations, those difficult seasons, that he has equipped you and that even then you can persist, even then we can press on because we're not doing it alone. We can press on in seasons of stumbling and falling and making messes everywhere because we have a gentle and loving father who has given us brothers and sisters to gently and lovingly restore us. We can press on in seasons of crushing burdens and heavy loads because we have a strong and selfless father. Who has empowered brothers and sisters around us to selflessly and graciously bear our burdens. We can press on in difficult seasons of need because we have a generous father who's blessed brothers and sisters around us to generously share their blessings with us. We could press on in seasons of darkness, in seasons of depression, and seasons of discouragement because we have a caring Father who has surrounded us with brothers and sisters who care for us. And ultimately, we press on, we persist because we have. Have an amazing Savior who will one day set things right. And until he does set things right, here's what he says to us. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Thank you, Jesus. And then Paul closes this passage with one final exhortation. In verse 10, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, Paul uses a particular word for opportunity here. Um, it's the Greek word kairos, and it's the same uh, word that he used when he translated seasons in the previous verse. So, And, and what he's doing, he's using these two Greek words in uh, these two different ways. He's Essentially, he's trying to, to play, paint this word picture for us. He's trying to paint this portrait for us to see uh, that God strategically places opportunities in our path for us to do good. Right? They're divinely orchestrated. I mean, do you ever go through your day thinking, about all the opportunities that come Do you. Do every ever go through your day thinking, all right, Lord, what situation are you going to put me in today where I'm going to have the opportunity to express love to another, to serve another, to tell somebody about you, to help somebody? We need to see these opportunities as God ordained. God places opportunities in our path for us to express the fruit of the indwelling Christ, to love others, to serve others through us. And especially, Paul says, to those within the household of faith, our community of faith. Those who call Bayside Chapel home, those of our brothers and sisters in any of our, of our neighborhood uh, Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches. We're to be genuine and intentional in helping to meet the needs of those around us. Helping to restore a broken brother who's walked away from church, helping to bear the burden of a single mom in the church who can use some support, whether it's emotional, spiritual, financial, whatever. We're to be genuine and generous in sharing all of the good things, all of our good things, as, as Paul says, all of our blessings with our teachers, with those around us, and especially with one another. We're to genuinely persist in caring for each other. We need to remember that woven into our very real vertical relationship with Christ is a just as real horizontal relationship with others that he's thrown us into the mix of, whether we like it or not. When you said yes to Jesus, a lot of things became true of you, and one of those things is that you're now part of God's family and you don't do life alone anymore. So understand, your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's not private. That's, that's a Western thing. The, the early church knew nothing of private faith, private Christianity. It's personal, it's not private. It's supposed to be public. It's supposed to be shared. Yes, and your relationship with Jesus is also individual, but understand that to the same extent that it's individual, it's equally communal. It's supposed to happen in the context of community. We were never meant to walk the Christian journey alone. Your Christian walk is a shared journey. As we walk in step with the spirit, let's remember that he has given us this new family called the church and he calls us to live life not in independence, not in isolation, but in community, locking arms with one another as we hike this journey of life. Spirit-led Christians will always cultivate spirit-filled community. Always. We do this by gently restoring one another by graciously bearing each other's burdens, by generously sharing our blessings with each other, and by genuinely caring for one another. I can't help but wonder what our churches would look like if every single one of us took seriously our responsibility to one another. Because we have a responsibility to one another. It's kind of like the story of the group of church men who refused to give up on one of their buddies uh, in his book, that's called The Book of Manly Men, uh, author Stephen Mans- Mansfield, he tells a true story about a church that had this uh, incredible, thriving men's ministry. And this men's ministry all started uh, because of one driving force behind it, and it was a, a guy by the name of Taylor. Taylor was the one who, who drove this men's ministry. He, he started it all. He was kind of the, the, the face of it. He, he led it. And it, was, it just flourished in this one church. It changed men's lives in the, in, within the church. It made a lasting impact within the community. But then there was a major transition that happened in the church. And somehow during that transition, uh, Taylor got uh, deeply hurt uh, by um, the church community. And he left the church. He wouldn't talk to anybody, and people assumed that he'd eventually find his way back, but he never did. So finally, some of the men in the church took it upon themselves to reach out to Taylor. After some discussion, the guys guys got together, they had a little bit of a chat, and then they came up with a very, very bold plan. Here was their plan. We're going to camp outside Taylor's house. All 150 of us. So they set up rotating shifts. They said they would not leave until Taylor came out. They had extension cords running from the neighbor's houses, going to their tents, powering their TVs. They had like 20 like grills and going and smokers. They were cooking barbecue food. Must have been a church in the South. Uh, they, they were in for the long haul. They even had big signs all over the place. Signs like, Taylor, come out. Taylor, we love you. Taylor, we're not leaving until we see you. We know you're in there. Now at first, Taylor didn't appreciate it. He even called the police on his former friends. As a matter of fact, the police showed up twice a day for almost a week. Every single time they came, Taylor would have to come to the door to explain the situation to the police. And every single time Taylor came to the door, opened the door to explain the situation to the police, the men camping in his yard would explode with cheers until Taylor finished his chat with the police and closed the door. And finally, on the sixth day, when Taylor opened the door to speak to the police, the men exploded again with cheers. And this time, Taylor finally broke down. He started crying his eyes out. He sputtered out how sorry he was. He then came out from his porch. He greeted all the men who had camped in his yard and refused to go away. And he was so thankful to them. And they, they brought him back. They restored him. And back at the church. See, that's the power of committed Persistent, spirit-led relationships and friendships with one another. Spirit-led Christians cultivate spirit-filled community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so worthy of our love, so worthy of our service. Lord, you're so worthy of our devotion. Lord, I pray that you would empower us and give us all the faith we need to build our lives upon you, to build our lives upon your love to the extent that your love would uh, transform us and overflow in us uh, to such a degree that it just pours out into the lives of those around us. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we'd walk ever more in step with you. God, equip us, equip us for the walk, the journey that you've called us on, Lord, and help us to remember that we don't walk this journey in isolation. Lord, that you've given us yourself, your spirit, Lord, and you've given us the Jesus in every one of our brothers and sisters to help us. Lord, I thank you for the men and women in this room, even now, Lord, personally, who have helped to bear my burdens. Lord, those who have offered restoration to me when needed. Lord, and I, I pray, God, for, for every, every one of your children in this room. Lord, that we would be a united church, united in our love for you, united in our, in our passion to see the gospel of Jesus go forth in our community, Lord, and united in, in our love and compassion for all of those we interact with. God, give us the humility that we need to go against uh, the, the current of society um, who wants to do everything independently, in isolation. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that just how blessed and privileged we are to have this church family, to have other brothers and sisters that love us, that want to restore us, that want to bear our burdens, that want to be generous with us, that want to care for us, Lord. And may we also be the kinds of brothers and sisters that want to do that for others as well. Lord, have your way with us. We love you. Jesus' name all God's children said.